Hello, my name is Thomas Prosser, and you're listening to the Tom's Curiosity Shop podcast and blog. Recently on Tom's Curiosity Shop, I've reflected on the quality of political commentary, arguing that meta-analysis is misleading. Though media evaluation of policy agendas and the conduct of politicians tends to be better, analysis of policy effects and the role of parties is very poor, even in the quality press. When assessing policy records, commentators tend to mistake noise for the effects of policy interventions. Indeed, research suggests that performance metrics are mostly outside the control of politicians. For example, it's very difficult to evaluate the economic policy records of governments. Most variables which influence economic development are outside government control. Why is so much commentary misleading? What are the implications of this? I had the pleasure of discussing these issues with Annan Menon. Annan is a professor at King's College London and director of the UK in a Changing Europe think tank. Annan is one of the UK's best-known academic commentators. He regularly appears in the UK media. As director of UK in a Changing Europe, Annan is famous for his rigorous and impartial analysis of Brexit. Given his experience as an academic and commentator, Annan was the perfect guest. I hope that you enjoy our conversation. If you do, please think about subscribing to Tom's Curiosity Shop. It's free. Hello, Annan. It's great to have you with us today. Could I start by asking whether you think that analysts and voters can accurately evaluate the effects of government policies? With great difficulty, I think, is the answer. And one of the reasons I think it's particularly difficult at the moment is there's just so much going on. Uh, so, you know, if you take the obvious example from a UK perspective, we left the European Union, we left the single market and the customs union. There had been a massive, long, ultimately quite boring debate for four years before then about the economic impacts this would have. And of course, when we finally did leave, then pretty soon afterwards, a couple of months later, COVID struck. Uh, and so untangling the macroeconomic impacts of Brexit from those of COVID is virtually impossible. So it is, even at the best of times, it's hard because politics and national economies and indeed life are very, very complicated. And there's a lot going on at any given time, but at the moment it is particularly so. Uh, and you see that, I think Brexit is still the best example. People are talking about whether Brexit is impacting on the economy and for the record it is. But discerning what is Brexit and what is Ukraine and what is a hangover from lockdown and what is to do with whatever's going on in China is hideously difficult. I should I'd add one other thing, uh, which applies to an extent to the media insofar as we have partisan media, but particularly to voters, is there is quite a lot of evidence around of what we call motivated reasoning. That is to say, people will interpret the evidence they see through their own ideological lenses. Uh, so one of the striking things, again, with regard to Brexit, though US listeners will recognise this from their own politics, is people who back leave think the economy is doing better than people who back remain. 
even when confronted with exactly the same economic data. So there is an element of bias to our interpretation as well. That's very interesting. But in recent years, there's been quite a lot of commentary which simplifies things greatly, rather than evaluating the influences which you just identified. Such commentators might attempt to blame specific events on processes like Brexit or on politicians like Joe Biden or Boris Johnson. Would you therefore say that lots of commentary is misleading? I think a lot of commentary is misleading. Uh, a lot of commentary is explicitly partisan. Uh, you have commentators from the left, you have commentators from the right. It's important to know who you're listening to uh, at any given moment. Uh, I remember being with a friend of mine in the United States around the time of the Democratic Convention in 2016 and we had the telly on and we had it on Fox and we were listening to the commentary my friend turned to me and said my god these people really don't like the Clintons do they because like Bill Clinton was in the audience and like they'd never sort of twigged that in the US you have very partisan media where you get this level of you know even the commentary is slightly sort of uh, biased in a certain direction. Uh, so yeah, I mean, actually our experience, I mean, we're a weird outfit in that we're a, we're a bunch of academics who try and play the role of a think tank. It's actually, my experience is people really appreciate it if you're in a sort of debate setting, if you say, I don't know, or if you say, actually, we can't really tell that now. Uh, so there is a space, I think, for doubt. But I think, you know, the, the reality of the media environment nowadays is certainty and clarity tend to get more clicks than uh, honest lack of knowledge. So would you say that this is what's driving this? The desire for clicks and subscriptions? Yeah, I think so. And I think the danger, of course, is the danger of echo chambers, that if you're on the left and you produce headlines that people on the left would like, they'll all click on it because it's self-reinforcing. It's what I already think. Ah, I'll click on that link because it seems to prove what I was saying last night in the pub. Uh, and and you appeal to that chunk of the of the electorate. Uh, the real trick to effective commentary, I think, is to be able to bridge those divides so that both sides will listen to you. And you know, I I would like to think that when a member of our team goes on the media, people genuinely don't know what they're about to say. And I think one of the problems with public debate at the moment is all too often you know exactly what someone's going to say. If someone comes on, you know. In the US, I suppose it's true, the big debates around guns or abortion or things like that. But in, in the UK, to use Brexit again, if you get someone on from the Leave side talking about Brexit, you're pretty certain you know what they're going to say. And likewise, to the other side as well. And so the debate just becomes very parochial and, and awfully predictable. As an academic who does lots of media work, is it easy to get drawn into simplistic arguments and explanation? Well, it is, but I mean, so there are certain basic steps we would take to avoid it. So if the BBC ring up and say, can you come into the studio to talk about X? Your first question is, who am I? Is there anyone else going to be there too? So what we will, we will always say no to being the second person in a debate. So if they say, yes, we've got a leave campaigner or a remain campaigner plus you, our policy is to say no, because you're automatically put in the situation of being on the other side of the debate. So we'll insist on either being the only person, as in here is someone who's an academic who's going to comment impartially, or of being the third person. So during the referendum, 
<clears throat> what we did a lot of was being the third person. So there'd be someone from the leave camp, someone from the remain camp, and one of us sort of in the middle and the presenter would come to us and say, actually, is that right? Does that make sense? Uh, so there are, there are certain tricks you can learn to avoid being forced into a corner. Uh, I mean, sometimes you'll get a particularly sort of pugnacious interviewer who will try and wrong foot you. Uh, a very, very common question that was posed to us sort of on air during the referendum was how did you, you know, how are you going to vote or afterwards, how did you vote? So you need to learn different tricks for sidestepping that one. Uh, but, you know, there, there are ways around it. I suppose it partly depends on context and it partly too depends on what level of influence you're talking about. By context, what I mean is there are moments when you get and, you know, you'll recognize this from the sort of academic literature about agenda setting and the policy cycle. You get windows of opportunity uh, where, where there is a, a chance to create and using the sort of path dependence literature, a new path, a rupture, a critical juncture, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so, for instance, I'm, I'm pretty convinced in the United Kingdom, we're living through one of those moments at the moment now where, you know, lots of things that were inconceivable a few years ago are no longer inconceivable. So to, to take one silly example that we came across today, because I'm doing a bit of work on this, I dug out the Financial Times editorial from just before the election of 2015 this morning. And it sort of very grudgingly said, yeah, I think you should probably vote for the coalition. We need the continuation of the same government, not because we think they're great, but because we think Ed Miliband is obsessed with inequality. Uh, the whole of the UK political debate has become obsessed with inequality ever since. And we're doing things that were condemned in 2015 when proposed by Ed Miliband as being Marxist. So the debate has moved. The sort of the windows of the possible have opened far, far wider than they were then. So I think at times like that, politicians can be absolutely central to shaping outcomes and to shaping the direction of public policy for years to come. Now, that's not to deny for a moment that in the process of making a policy, experts, civil servants uh, play a key role in some of the detailed stuff. Uh, you know, you go, you know, the, the Treasury will have a number of off the shelf things that it wants to try to address the cost of living crisis. But the macro decision about whether we do it via capping prices, whether we have to tax people more to do it, whether it's a long term mortgage on the British taxpayer, that's a political decision. And so the broad outlines are shaped by politics, I think, particularly at a time of flux like this, when actually orthodoxy and the traditional way of doing things are seen as bad. Uh, but equally, in periods where things are calmer and there's less change, I think there's less room for manoeuvre in politics, because actually one of the things we saw pre-2010 is the gap between the two political parties narrowed a lot. So actually, in terms of policy alternatives, there wasn't a lot to choose between the two. Recently, we've heard a lot about Liz Truss being a satirite. But looking at this from another angle, the Truss Energy Plan is one of the biggest government interventions in recent history. How much of a dissonance do you think there is between commentary and reality? In lots of cases, it seems that analysts are just evaluating noise. To an extent, and I think we're, we're partly we're, we're confronting a phenomenon that will be very recognisable to your American listeners, which is we've had a Tory leadership contest in which Liz Truss was trying to get the votes of Conservative members. And in a, in a broad sense, that's like a primary. 
you're talking to the party and the party tend to be in the case of the conservatives to the right of the british population as a whole on a number of things now the question is whether as in many american elections you know a right-wing politician tacks back towards the center after the primaries for the general and we don't know yet whether liz truss meant everything she said uh or whether or not actually that was just a ploy to win the election. And now that she's won the election, she's actually going to govern more from the centre. And there are examples of both in the US. I remember pre-Trump, lots of people saying, OK, well, he's he's got the general election now. He'll start behaving better. And he didn't and took lots of people by surprise. So that's the first thing, is the degree to which these words are tailored to specific audiences. The second thing, of course, is whatever the personality of the prime minister, you don't get to govern by yourself. Uh, to govern, you have to have the backing of a majority of MPs. And that means for Liz Truss, with an 80-seat majority, the backing of her own party. And so even if she were, for instance, to have been joking or fibbing when she talked about tax cuts during the leadership election, I'd argue it would be impossible for her not to deliver those tax cuts now because she'd face a rebellion amongst her own party and her budget might not get through. So, you know, there are various layers of constraint working here. My sense with the Conservative Party, and this is where it gets interesting, is it is in economic terms quite a right-wing government. It's a government that's committed to tax cuts. It's a government who, if you ask most of them, would say they want to see a smaller state. At the same time, they're a government in power at a time when the government has no choice but to massively subsidise the energy bills of the whole British population. So you have a right-wing government at a time when what would normally be called left-wing policies are basically compulsory. So those labels are becoming less useful, I think, since COVID, because, you know, giving tax cuts, fine. Yep, that's a traditional conservative policy. Giving tax cuts whilst helping out the British consumer to the tune of £100 billion. Well, that's less obviously a left, a right wing, a right wing government. Let me play the devil's advocate for a moment. What if I say that given systematic constraints, Liz Truss's personal ideological preferences are irrelevant and will have no influence on policy outcomes. Is that a serious hypothesis, do you think? It, no, it's, it, it's, it's not unserious in the sense that you and I don't know what Liz Truss really thinks. You know, there's a, there's a psychological element to this and a political element. The psychological element is, is she just saying stuff she doesn't believe in because that's the stuff she knows she can get through or that's the stuff that will get her elected? That we'll never know. Uh, but I think the British Prime Minister has the power to shape outcomes to some extent, dependent on A, the real world. That is to say, you might think, OK, I've, come, I've become Prime Minister, I want to shrink the state, cut taxes and not do any bailouts. I think you would bump into reality quite quickly with the cost of living crisis then. So you need to be broadly attuned with empirical reality. And secondly, as I said, you need to keep your party in line behind you. And the third thing is, of course, and this is another of the constraints on British public policy at the moment, we're going to have an election within the next two years. So we are getting ourselves into election footing now. So anything any government does, anything any prime minister does, assuming, as I think we should, that the ultimate goal of that prime minister is to get re-elected in two years' time, will have an eye on the British electorate as well, rather than simply on what they want to do. So there are, I think their preferences do matter. I think, as we saw at the first Prime Minister's questions today with Keir Starmer, we're actually in a world now where the two uh, the two candidates to be the next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom 
uh, are actually talking about policy, and there's clear blue water between them on policy, but within the context of a myriad constraints that limit the autonomy of the person in Downing Street. Okay, so we broadly agree then that there's something of a dissonance between what the media, both traditional media and social media, think is happening and what's actually happening. What are the implications of this? Are they good or bad? It's, I'd say in terms of the quality of public debate, it's probably bad. I think in terms of the real world, it's probably inevitable. And I would say as well that academics are in sort of completely impervious to the lure of clicks or follows or whatever else it is. I mean, I can think of academics who go beyond the evidence to make claims on social media and it makes them notorious and being notorious nowadays is a good thing. Uh, you know, it gets you noticed. So I don't think we should, you know, there are, there are, there are academics and academics out there. But I, I think social media probably makes it worse because it's easy to attract to following by being mildly outrageous. And mildly outrageous in our world isn't necessarily sort of swearing a lot or whatever. It's saying things that are counterintuitive that make people notice you. And there's a whole, you know, media industry of counterintuitiveness out there. You think of outlets like Unheard who specialise in publishing articles with headlines that make you think, really? And maybe we could reflect on implications for liberal democracy. As we were saying, there's quite a lot of aggressive commentary out there which tries to blame people for different problems. And on social media, for example, certain people seem to relish blaming the Tories or Remainers or whoever. So on one level, you've got the proliferation of analysis, which is inaccurate. On another level, you've got the proliferation of narrative, which blames others. I think that this mixture is very undesirable. OK, I mean, first and foremost, I'm not going to defend the tone of a lot of commentary on social media. I mean, particularly for a woman, the sort of abuse that gets meted out is hideous. And actually, I'd like to see the social media companies act more decisively to stop that. So that's the first thing. But secondly, what I'd say is that, you know, politics is, to coin a phrase, a contact sport. Uh, and it's particularly a contact sport in systems like ours or the US one, where you have first past the first and majoritarian government. Uh, winner takes all government tends to breed that sort of behavior, which is, you know, your way to success is not just to put forward a coherent message yourself, but to blame the other side for everything that has gone wrong. Uh, so it's kind of inherent in the sort of politics we've chosen to have. Uh, it's interesting that in your question, you couched it as liberal democracy, because I think the one thing we're very bad at in this country is appreciating the fact that we live in a liberal democracy, not a democracy. Uh, it is too easy in the UK to use the word unelected as a pejorative, whereas actually our system depends precisely not just on parliament, which is elected, but also on judges, on regulatory agencies, on the Bank of England, on a whole host of unelected bodies that play a role either in keeping government in check or in helping to shape public policy, or in the case of the bank, setting public policy in the form of uh, interest rates. And so I think, you know, in some, there are two things. Yes, the debate is always going to be fairly angry in this sort of adversarial system, but two, it is too easy to forget that politics isn't simply the purview of elected politicians, but is governed by a whole load of other institutions as well. And I guess there's an opposite danger. Imagine if the media echoed the conclusions of some scholars of government who argue that parties don't really make a difference to social economic outcomes and that systematic influences are far more important. 
What would be the implication of that, do you think? There are lots of answers to that question. The first is the worst thing the politician can do is claim not to have power. Uh, I remember back in the 2002 French presidential election, Lionel Jospin, uh, the candidate of the Socialist Party, made a speech in which he said, look, you know, I paraphrase, uh, you know, we have economic policies. There's only so much we can do because the forces of globalization and the presence of the European Union means that the French government is very limited in what they can do in terms of economic policy. And he dropped in the polls overnight, having said that. So I think honesty about the constraints under which we live is probably not the best policy for politicians who are seeking uh, votes in the sense that, you know, you, you need to be able to promise that you are able to do certain things particularly the current moment when you have, if you'll call it a populist wave, but it's a rebellion against the old orthodoxy, if you like. I'd say two things. One, part of the rebellion is against government by experts, government by technocrats who claim to know best and who take decisions that they argue are in the general interest that actually reflect their own interest. And the second thing I'd say is, you know, we have gone period through periods in our history where it does look like they're all the same. You know, I talked about the, the, the first decade of this century, where basically both the Labour Party and the Conservative Party were broadly economically liberal and socially liberal. Uh, and famously, that line, oh, they're all the bloody same, really took root. And what you ended up with was people stopping voting, voting for protest parties and things like that. Uh, you know, there is a danger in democratic politics that if it looks like you're not giving people a real alternative, They'll look elsewhere for one. I think Trump was partly a reaction to that in the United States, that sense that, you know, you know, moderate Democrat, moderate Republican, what is there to choose? We need something different because these people are governing in their own interests. I think we had something very similar here with Brexit, which is a kind of two fingers to the whole establishment to some extent. Uh, so I suppose that the, the conclusion there is a warning to people who sort of complain about polarization. Obviously, excessive polarization isn't a good thing. But for democracies to function properly, you need some polarization. Because if all your political choices start to look identical, then the people start to think they're being conned. I'm still struck, really, by the dissonance between academic and political analysis. Many academics would agree with Just Ban's analysis. Governments have little influence on policy outcomes. So, could we conclude that, in a way, it's in the interest of everyone to ignore certain academic analysis and really emphasise political agency? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. And I think also it's incumbent on academics to understand that your average voter wants to feel like they have a degree of control over outcomes. And the more remote, either geographically or from the democratic process, the people taking the decisions are, the more you're in danger of stoking up popular resentment about policies over which they seem to have no say or no control whatsoever. And getting that balance right, I think maybe under New Labour in the first decade of the century, we went too far towards sort of technocratic politics, the sort of we know best, don't worry about it. We now are compensating with a very populist form of politics where government seems to be intent on stripping down as many of the checks and balances on its power as possible. I'd say the sweet spot is somewhere, somewhere, probably somewhere in between the two. But I do think there is a tension there and it's a tension that people need to be aware of, that people need to explain, that politicians actually probably need to think about and talk about. I think, you know, one of the most disturbing things in the Brexit saga was seeing government ministers turning a blind eye to newspapers calling judges enemies of the people.
that's not the way to strengthen the functioning of our liberal democratic system. And how do you think that the press or analysts could improve? Uh, I'm not sure it's for me to say how the press could improve, uh, because ultimately the the incentives of the press are commercial. Uh, you know, they they need to have subscribers or watchers or whatever it is to continue to function. I think we're very lucky in this country to have the BBC. Uh, because they don't face exactly the same sort of pressures, though Lord alone knows they do face pressures. And I think that you know the BBC is the one thing that marks us off decisively from the United States in terms of media landscape. For academics, what I would say, I'd say several things about academics, I think. I think, firstly, if you're a social scientist, you should contribute to public debates. Uh, I think far too much academic knowledge is either hidden behind paywalls or disguised behind very, very complicated language that no one outside the economy, the, the academy could read. And I think, you know, it's incumbent upon us to share our findings. And I think secondly, the, the way to do that, there are two ways of doing that, two distinct routes. There are some academics who are campaigners. So they're either labor or conservative or they're, they're, they're environmental campaigners. And they, I think that's potentially problematic in the sense that once you've declared yourself as a campaigner, it's harder to take you as seriously as an academic. Uh, in the sense that it's harder to think that you are impartially presenting evidence if you have declared a cause. What we've done, uh, this organisation, is try and remain rigorously impartial and just present evidence and leave it to other people. So we never lobby for particular outcomes. We just say, OK, this is the choice you have. These are the potential economic implications of that choice. Go away and make up your own mind. And what we found with that kind of approach, which is a hard approach in a polarized country like the UK is at the moment, is that you get a grudging hearing from both sides. We face all sorts of pressures. We face pressures from our funders who think that sometimes, you know, if we say things that annoy the government, we should be a bit more careful because our funders are funded by the government and are wary about that. We've, we face abuse from both sides of the Brexit debate. Uh, leavers think we're Remainers, Remainers think we're Leavers. Uh, we face calls on social media for government to stop funding us because we're a disgrace or whatever else. So yeah, we, we get that sort of thing. You sort of learn to live with it. I mean, I'm I'm pretty confident that the research we produce or the research that we popularize is good, high quality state of the art social science. And my line is, you know, if you want to talk to us about the research, we'd love to. If you want to have a go at us as people, we're not going to listen. So has the social media abuse affected you? It doesn't. I mean, I, I personally, and this is purely personally, it doesn't bother me at all. Uh, I don't take, I, you know, Twitter's, Twitter, I think Twitter is, I mean, in my job, Twitter is absolutely indispensable, but I, te I tend to think of Twitter as being fun and I don't tend to get too upset with, uh, I mean, it, it, actually, curiously enough, the, the most sort of vitriolic criticism comes from the people who self-identify as liberal, cosmopolitan and tolerant. Uh, it's, it's that side of the debate that can be the most scathing when they decide that you've said something they don't like. We've talked about a series of problems with political commentary. Finally, would you have any advice for people who'd like to be better informed? Uh, I think choose your sources. Uh, I think there are, you know, there are really good places. I mean, I'd obviously say our website here. There are think tanks that produce very good work, but, you know, look into what their leanings are. There's the Monkey Cage blog in the United States where academics write for the Washington Post that always produces really interesting analysis. There are lots of places out there. I'm delighted to say that more and more academics are joining the public debate and getting engaged and getting involved and sharing the results of their findings. So I think, you know, 
I can't give you a definitive list here, uh, but there are all sorts of places that you can go for good, informed commentary and analysis of what's going on. And a final plug in the United Kingdom, there's an organization here called Full Fact, which is the UK's official fact-checking charity. And they do a brilliant job in scrutinizing the claims that politicians make. Uh, they have partnerships with Google and Facebook to do the same on their sites as well. Uh, and they're doing a sterling job very much against the odds, I have to say, in trying to ensure that politicians are honest and what they say is actually factually correct. Thank you ever so much, Alan. That was really interesting. It's been really nice talking to you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed, please think about subscribing to Tom's Curiosity Shop. It's free.